You're listening to the Diplomats Asia Geopolitics Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Putz, coming to you from Maryland. And I'm your co-host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. Today, we are going to be putting Ankit on the spot to discuss the latest developments on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, so over the last week, North Korea has fired more than two dozen short-range ballistic missiles, hundreds of artillery shells into the waters surrounding the peninsula. There's also reportedly tested an intercontinental ballistic missile. At the same time, Pyongyang has denied allegations made by the United States that it's covertly supplying artillery shells to Russia, circumventing sanctions on Moscow over the invasion of Ukraine. And most worryingly, uh, a nuclear test, what would be North Korea's seventh such test, is anticipated by many analysts, but the precise timing is a guessing game. Uh, Ankit, let's start with all the tests and the missiles of last week. What is significant about these tests, and is there anything new that you've seen in them that merits uh, closer attention? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun to be on the other side of this for once. Um, the the big takeaway, actually, I think here is that the word tests is no longer really appropriate to talk about the majority mm -hmm. of missile launches that happen in North Korea. Right. That used to be the case in, in 2016, 2017, certainly. Uh, and certainly before that, anytime North Korea launched a missile, uh, it used to be a fairly rare event, uh, generally speaking. And the North Koreans were usually doing it because they were genuinely pursuing new capabilities. Uh, and they're still doing some of that. But basically, the bulk of the activity that you laid out, Katie, uh, actually just corresponds to military exercises, uh, that mm -hmm. the North Koreans are demonstrating to the United States and South Korea that they would have the ability to use ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, in a very prominent and large-scale way in the course of a conflict. Uh, and why would they do this? Uh, we have seen an unprecedented increase in North Korean missile launches, right? Uh, I was in Korea last week, and I, I landed. Uh, and just a couple hours after I landed, these missiles started flying right through the airspace that I just traversed. So I was very happy to be on the ground. But uh, what was uh, just very surreal was uh, watching the sheer volume of North Korean missile launches. Right, they launched more missiles in the twenty in the first twenty four hours I was in South Korea than they used to in entire years. Uh, and so th the main reason for this is they are responding to. Uh, what they perceive the United States and South Korea to be doing, which is carrying out exercises of their own, which they view as rehearsals for an invasion of North Korea, uh, right? And so the U.S. and South Korea have been very publicly talking up the the activities that they're undertaking, which the North Koreans have reacted negatively to. Uh, and it's not just last week. I would argue that we're, we're really now nine or so weeks into this action-reaction cycle between the two Koreas and, and the U.S.-Korea mm -hmm. alliance and North Korea more broadly. Um, so I was going to focus next on the the North Korean view of the military drills that United States and South Korea routinely carry out. Uh, North Korean state-controlled media referred to its recent barrage of what we're not going to call tests, but firings, I guess, uh, as corresponding military operations uh, in response to recently concluded joint military air drill between the United States and Korea. Uh, North Korea, as you said, views these as provocative. Um, you know, how do these drills between the U.S. and South Korea fit into that alliance um, in both a political and a military sense? And then are they provocative? Are they not provocative? Does it depend on where you stand? I'm curious about your take on that. Yeah, I mean, let me start with the provocation question, because it's an interesting one. Uh, and, you know, I think American and South Korean officials get upset when people make this point that the North Koreans view the exercises, which they will correctly say are defensive exercises, right? In no universe mm -hmm. are the U.S. or South Korea going to out of the blue one day invade North Korea. That is just simply not on the table. Uh, but the point is the North Koreans, I think, genuinely 
I think do have a, a a legitimate threat perception here, right? I mean, I mean, just just I think the easiest way to think about it is this way, right? The North Koreans basically built nuclear weapons because they have a terrible conventional military, and the only way they hope to prevail in a conflict is by resorting to the early use of nuclear weapons, which can be deployed more cheaply and and used to tremendous effect in the course of a conflict. So that's how they plan to offset their conventional military weaknesses. Meanwhile, the United States and South Korea, uh, viewed from the North Korean vantage point, are overwhelmingly qualitatively superior in every regard when it comes to conventional military capabilities, right? They have better intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, more precise missiles, uh, a whole range of sea and air-based platforms. Uh, in the case of many of these air-based platforms, which I'll talk about a little bit just because we're talking about the aerial exercises, the vigilant storm drills that that specifically appeared to precipitate this unprecedented spate of North Korean missile launches. Uh, these aerial exercises involve things like F-35As, which are effectively invisible to North Korean air defense systems, right? So the North Koreans really don't like this because they also worry about things like threats from the United States and South Korea to take out their leadership, i.e. kill Kim Jong-un, which they find particularly threatening given that the entire reason they have nuclear weapons is to preserve the regime. And so that's kind of the threat perception piece of this, which is basically the North Koreans don't want the U.S. and South Korea to carry out any military exercises because they want their adversaries to be as poorly prepared as possible conventionally. Uh, and I think that's the reason the North Koreans react the way that they do. A secondary consideration is the old, you know, um, consideration that, uh, you know, was a, was a big factor during the Cold War when the Soviet Union would complain about military exercises in Europe. And, uh, and you know, we have examples in many other cases that exercises could be a prelude to an attack. Again, that sounds ridiculous to those of us on the outside who fully understand that South Korea and the United States aren't just going to invade North Korea out of the blue. Uh, but that's the North Korean case. Um, and then the role that these exercises play within the alliance, which was your first question. Um, so, here, I think there is an important piece of context that makes how the alliance might calibrate what it's doing more complicated, because obviously over the last uh, five plus years, the North Koreans have just tremendously advanced their own capabilities with regard to missiles, with regard to nuclear weapons, they're pursuing tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, and in South Korea, we had a change of government this year where the progressive government uh, led by former President Moon Jae-in, which favored diplomacy and engagement with North Korea, uh, left office, and we now have a conservative government that has a very different theory of engagement with North Korea. They are trying to pursue diplomacy, but they're also um, very much of the school of thought that the only way to make North Korea back down is to threaten to punish them and to demonstrate that the alliance is strong. Uh, the other factor is assurance within the context of the alliance. More South Koreans than ever want to build their own nuclear weapons or want American nuclear weapons to come back to the peninsula. They have doubts about whether the United States might defend South Korea in the context of a conflict. And so this is primarily what's driving the Biden administration's policy right now. Right? They want the South Koreans to feel as if extended, uh, extended deterrence and assurance are working as they should. And a big part of that is very publicly talking about all of the things the alliance is doing. Uh, so in the case of Vigilant Storm, I mean, one of the things I noticed in the press was you had American officials basically saying that this year's exercise was going to be unprecedented in its intensity. Uh, they specifically said, I think, 1,600 sorties were going to take place uh, or, uh, you know, or something like that. And, and of course, when the U.S. and ROK moved on to carry out this unprecedented aerial exercises, the North Koreans responded with unprecedented missile launches, right? It's very much a tit-for-tat. And, and I'll stop talking in a moment, but the tit-for-tat thing I think is really important because Kim Jong-un outlined how he, uh, you know, I mean, he basically publicly said last year that the way in which he was going to approach the United States and South Korea was through the aegis of power for power. 
uh, right? Which in his way, I think, was saying tit for tat that anytime the U.S. and South Korea uh, demonstrate military strength on their own part, North Korea would respond in kind. Uh, and so that's all playing out. The big concern here, of course, is misperception, miscalculation, potentially precipitating a broader crisis, which is something that I don't think we can rule out. Mm. So, you know, I, I want to move to diplomacy next. You know, you touched on this a little bit with the change of administration in South Korea. And then I think I, I would throw in the change of administration in the United States from, from the Trump administration, the Biden administration changed uh, how both approached the North Korea question. You know, what what is the state of diplomacy between the United States and North Korea at this point? What is the state of diplomacy between the South and the North uh, in, in, in relation to, you know, four years ago? Uh, so compared to four years ago, I mean, basically, there's nothing of note to speak of, uh, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you kind of have the, I don't know if this reference is really going to carry with many of our listeners, but, uh, you know, the old... Uh, does it say anything? Is that the movie where John Cusack holds up the boombox outside of the window and just, you know, is trying to talk to the whoever? I am not old enough to really know the answer to that, but okay. I think you're right. I but understand the reference, but I don't know the movie. <laughs> anyways, it's it's an analogy that I think describes what's happening diplomatically quite well, which is that the U.S. is holding up a boombox telling the North Koreans that pick up the phone and we'll talk to you about anything, uh, which is mm -hmm. not good enough for the North Koreans. Uh, I mean, broadly speaking, though, like more seriously, going back to 2019, since the Hanoi summit, I think Kim Jong-un has broadly reassessed the value of engaging with the United States. And I don't think it particularly has to do with the Biden administration, though I think the change in administration from Trump to Biden did, I think, generally show the North Koreans that they've fallen down the list of American priorities. Um, mm -hmm. But more broadly speaking, I think they also are fully aligning themselves right now with Russia and China and Beijing and Moscow have also publicly indicated that they are more they view North Korea as much more of an asset than a liability in the current geopolitical environment, which wasn't true in 2017 when you know Russia and China allowed new sanctions resolutions, for instance, to take hold against Pyongyang. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing goes for inter-Korean diplomacy. Uh, the South Korean government uh, has this very early 2000s idea, if uh, you know, if I might describe it that way. Uh, it's called the Audacious Initiative. <laughs> it's basically you know saying, "Pretty please, give up your nuclear weapons, and we will give you a lot of money and economic benefits," which is something the North Koreans have just over and over ruled out. So I don't even know. It just feels like a very pro forma approach to to trying to you know come up with a, a strategy to denuclearize North mm. Korea, uh, which is just not going to happen at this point. Uh, so there's there's not much to speak of diplomatically, uh, and and that again, you know, I mean, just just tying this back to these crisis dynamics that are playing out, it's a bit of a concern because even things like the inter-Korean hotline uh, that were um, you know reestablished in the course of the diplomacy that took place uh, for uh, four years ago was uh, really quite useful, right? Because in, in moments like this, if there is, let's say, a North Korean stray cruise missile that flies into South Korean airspace or a South Korean missile that malfunctions, which did actually happen over the course of the last few weeks, uh, it's important to be able to tell the other side that, hey, we're not actually attacking you. We just had one of our missiles, you know, fly where it shouldn't have. That's just, you know, one example of, of why communication is important. So it's, it's concerning. Uh, but the one thing that, you know, is perhaps a piece of silver lining here is everything that I see right now internally in North Korea, I think suggests that the North Koreans aren't actively trying to precipitate a crisis of the kind that took place in 2010 when they sank a South Korean ship and, and shelled a South Korean island, right? In 2010, there was a very compelling political, uh, com political reason for those crises, which was that North Korea was preparing for a 
leadership succession from Kim Jong-il, who had suffered a stroke a few years earlier and, and was planning to set up Kim Jong-un uh, for, for the leadership transition. Uh, and Kim, it said, was sort of overseeing those military operations to sort of establish his bona fides with the uh, the North Korean generals, the graybeards, so to speak, that, that surrounded Kim Jong-il. Right now, uh, this power-to-power you know, mantra that Kim Jong-un has laid out basically just suggests that they're going to keep going, you know, tit for tat and and uh, and perhaps not escalating beyond that in a way that might actually precipitate a broader conflict. So that's that's the little bit of silver lining that I can offer here. But it's still obviously a very fluid situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to pivot for just a moment to the Russia North Korea relationship. Um, and this is in part inspired by uh, and this is a little aside and, and a trivia fact for everyone. Uh, North Korea is one of three countries that borders both China and Russia. Uh, the other two are Mongolia and Kazakhstan. It was a Jeopardy final answer a few weeks ago. Uh, so everybody can take that to their trivia teams. Um, but the reason I ask about this is this week, North Korea denied allegations that the U.S. Uh, made that it's covertly sp- supplying Russia with artillery shells. Uh, U.S. says North Korea is obscuring these shipments, funneling them through the Middle East, North Africa. I'm I'm curious what you make of these reports, Ankit. And, you know, if they are true, what does that tell us about the North Korea-Russia relationship? I think that's one that we talk about less than we talk about the North Korea-China relationship. Um, and really what the impact of that relationship and the specific sort of geopolitical dynamics of the moment may have on future UN Security Council efforts regarding North Korea, in particular related to the nuclear program you'd mentioned um, back in 2019, uh, Russia and China maybe had a had a different position in in the UN when it came to North Korea. Um, what's that like in the you know world of 2022? Yeah, I think this is a really important question, uh, and and I think it's and I think it's one of the more important geopolitical realignments in Northeast Asia. Uh, it's not really a realignment in the sense that Russia and North Korea have had a cooperative relationship. Uh, for a while, although, you know, Russia was for a while behaving as a responsible member of the P5, mm-hmm. partly implementing sanctions against North Korea on on things like organized criminal groups, you know, sending North Korean certain supplies. Uh, it is true that North Korea sources important components for its ballistic missile programs from within Russia, uh, but most of the publicly available evidence uh, suggests that it's not directly sanctioned by the Russian government. Uh, and so for a while, there was evidence that the Russians were actually taking action against the the sort of untoward groups within their borders that might be helping the North Koreans out. Uh, now everything sort of, you know, uh, completely changed. I mean, Russia is a pariah state, uh, at least in the view of the West, on the order of a North Korea these days, right? The, the West is trying to isolate North, uh, Russia as much as it can. Um, North Korea, meanwhile, uh, has basically just stood shoulder to shoulder with North Korea. They have voted with uh, with um, with Russia at the UN over every resolution related to Ukraine, they have recognized the annexed uh, territories uh, in um, in uh, eastern Ukraine. They have opted to even send potentially laborers to these annexed territories. Uh, although they made that decision when when the when they were declared as republics, of course they weren't UN member states, so the North Koreans. We're, we're looking to perhaps send workers there to circumvent sanctions, which are required to be enforced by all, all member states of the UN. Um, so this this artillery thing, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, as you noted, Katie, the North Koreans denied it. Uh, they've actually publicly denied it twice now, which is interesting mm-hmm. because they don't necessarily uh, go out there to publicly deny everything. Um, but the U.S., I think, is probably right about this. I mean, there's no, obviously, open source corroboration of any of this, uh, but it seems like exactly the kind of thing that I could see the North Koreans opting for in the current geopolitical climate. 
Uh, the quid pro quo makes a lot of sense, right? The Russians are, it's not that the Russians are going to run out of artillery. It's just that they need to sustain their, their sort of national stocks at certain levels, uh, in the case of a broader war in Europe, for instance, between Russia and NATO. So they can't just blow, you know, everything on Ukraine. So they're probably using reverse compatible artillery shells, uh, that, um, the North Koreans are actually able to produce themselves uh, to sort of backfill their stocks is, is what I think is happening here. Um, and and it's not just artillery shells. It's also uh, unguided rocket artillery based on mm -hmm. the initial public reporting. And then what did the North Koreans gain? Well, everything from, you know, Russian support of the Security Council, uh, you know, Russian authorities turning the other cheek to um, suppliers for uh, for North Korea's ballistic missile programs. Uh, there's just a whole number of things I can imagine the North Koreans getting out of this arrangement. Um the other thing that I think sort of flies under the radar in a lot of the discussions publicly about the Russia-North Korea relationship that strikes me as sort of an interesting dynamic is uh, obviously North Korea closed itself off to the world in January 2020 uh, after after the then pandemic in China uh, became known to, uh, uh, to North Korean authorities. Um, as the pandemic, of course, went on, uh, we saw a huge exodus of diplomats uh, from North Korea, which uh, significantly limited North Korea's engagements with the outside world, but also visibility into North Korea. I believe there's just eight diplomatic missions that continue to operate with permanent personnel right now in Pyongyang. One of them is Russia. Uh, and what's prominent about Russia in particular is that the Russian ambassador in Pyongyang, uh, this guy called uh, Alexander Matsugora, uh, he's actually the longest serving foreign diplomat uh, in Pyongyang at this point. Uh, and, hmm. and my understanding is that he has a very good relationship with the North Korean government uh, and, and and understands Pyongyang quite well. So looking at all of these, you know, North Korea, Russia goings on around the Ukraine conflict, everything from the ammo supply deal to, to North Korean diplomatic support, I suggest is partly a function of that Russian ability to have had this sort of long serving diplomat in Pyongyang. Hmm. Even the Chinese have gone through, you know, multiple ambassadors during the time that Matsugura has been there. So I just wanted to point that out because I, I I think it's an interesting um, you know an interesting sort of building block uh, in this relationship that's remained constant over uh, over many of the last several years. Um, all right, and I th I think the only place really to close out this discussion is to ask you uh, when you expect North Korea's next nuclear test to occur, and if you don't want to go out on that limb with a specific prediction, which totally fair. What is it that you're watching for when it comes to that anticipated test? Is there it, and I'm asking in sort of technical terms, what kind of movements would you say would precipitate such a test? And then just political terms. I imagine there's great significance to the timing of such a test. Uh, so any any quick thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you know, we just uh, we just passed the date range that South Korea's National Intelligence Service had anticipated for a possible nuclear test. Uh, and so they clearly got it wrong. And I think and, and I think that more broadly, you know, kind of gets to one of the issues that I think I have with predicting North Korean behavior. I think I think predicting predicting North Korean behavior at the strategic level, I think, is actually very doable. Uh, they're mm -hmm. they're not an unpredictable country, despite uh, you know however many reports describe them in that way. They're actually very predictable because they they say what they're going to do and they usually do it. Um, but tactical warning is very difficult. Tactical warning in the sense mm -hmm. of you know what day, what time will they will they carry out a nuclear test? Um, so I'm going to kind of dodge your question a little bit. I mean, my guess is you know broadly in the next weeks to months, uh, you know, if I looked at my phone one evening, uh, evening here in the United States, because they tend to do the nuclear test in the morning, and I and I saw a you know U.S. Geological Survey report of an undetected <laughs> earthquake uh, exactly on the hour at North Korea's nuclear test site, I wouldn't be shocked, right? I think we're all expecting it. It's been baked into our expectations for months now since earlier this year. Uh, the most important question is what 
would they do a nuclear test for and, and what would they test? Uh, and, you know, I think all, all indicators are pointing to a tactical nuclear weapon, a, a lower yield, lower mass, more compact nuclear device that they could put on things like their new cruise missiles and use smaller short range missiles to hold at risk targets in South Korea and Japan, uh, primarily military targets, I think. So that's one of the stated goals that the North Koreans have. Uh, I also think it's possible that they will open a new campaign of nuclear tests. So not just one, but they might test nuclear weapons uh, ever so often as they as they need to, as they refine their designs. So yeah, I think that's all I have to say on that. But uh, it's it's something I think will, that will definitely uh, definitely happen at some point. I'd be I'd be very surprised if the North Koreans did not test. All right. Well, thanks very much for the conversation, Ankit. It's always a pleasure uh, to talk about North Korea with you. Absolutely, I could uh, I could talk about this stuff for hours. So it's it's in, fun to do it for just twenty minutes. In fact, you wrote a book about it. Anyway, uh, for our listeners, please recommend us to a friend. Subscribe to the Diplomat to support our work, and of course, don't hesitate to get in touch if there are any topics you'd like to hear Ankit and I discuss. We're both still on Twitter for now, uh, and you can always reach us by email too. Until next time, take care. Thanks, Katie.